This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2020. From Luminary and Vilted Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Terry Lundgren and Macy's. Taking that risk, in fact, to me, was uh, safer than not taking a risk by not changing. That, that, to me, was an even bigger risk. How Terry Lundgren doubled down on retail and made Macy's the largest department store in U.S. history. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So for most of the 20th century, most U.S. cities had at least one iconic department store. In Boston, it was Filene's. In Chicago, Marshall Fields. Philadelphia had Wanamaker's. In Milwaukee, it was Gimbel's and so on. They had marble floors and glass atriums and glamorous tea salons. And these stores all had strong regional identities. They catered to their regional customers. But by the early 21st century, as e-commerce started to disrupt traditional retail, many of these stores couldn't survive on their own and became part of bigger national chains, particularly Macy's. And the idea to create a national department store chain was largely Terry Lundgren's. Terry was instrumental in turning Macy's into the biggest department store brand in the world. At one point under his leadership, the company's stock hit an all-time high. Today, of course, the retail landscape is much, much more challenging. A downward trend Terry started to see towards the end of his time at Macy's. Terry grew up in a family of six kids in Orange County, California. He was a pretty good student, but in college at the University of Arizona, he spent a lot less time on academics and a lot more time on his social life. Until one day of his junior year, when he received an unexpected phone call from his dad. And he said, son, I, uh, got, I saw your report card. And the guy said, oh, yeah. I said, you know, you know, those professors have it out for me. You know, they're, they're just not giving me a chance. And I started having all these ex- stupid excuses. And he said, well, I'm sorry about that. He said, listen, um, uh, your mom and I have talked about this. And um, we are no longer able to uh, fund your education. And I remember saying to him, Dad, you don't understand. You're ruining my life. And he just a little pause at the end. I could hear my mom, like, I think she was crying a little bit in the, in the background. Uh, my dad said, son, if that's how you choose to see it, it's you who's made the decision to ruin your life, not me. And I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, got the message and hung up the phone and started thinking about what am I going to do? Yeah. Long story short, I, I went to apply for jobs and, and, uh, remember going into this restaurant called the Solarium Restaurant, became a waiter and then a head waiter. And, uh, I became manager of that restaurant. 
So you graduate and you work in the restaurant for a while, and it sounds like you were um, you were sort of you know going to pursue a job, you know, at a big company. You were looking around, and I guess you you got a, an offer to go work for Xerox, which in the in the sort of the mid seventies, like that's that was the place to go. I mean, that was like that was like going to Apple or Google today. Yeah, that was a big deal. Um, I had thirteen job offers when I when I graduated, but I I had accepted the job from Xerox because that was a cool company and uh, and they were the highest paying uh, at the time as well. And and this is going to be this is going to be like a just a, a sales job or or like a marketing job. Yes. It was a it was a sales training job and all of the 12 or 13 of us we all looked the same. There was some, mostly men but some women and we all basically looked the same and talked the same and had the same sort of background and education and worked hard and all of that. But I just didn't feel like uh, there was anything unique about it. And but, but they were paying the most. And frankly, I needed to pay off the little debt that I still had in, for college. And I needed it. I was desperate for a new car. And so that money was a motivator. And then, even though I had accepted this job, I took an an interview, a final interview with Bullock's department store in Los Angeles because it was going to be on a Friday. So so Bullock's, for people who don't remember, was a a department store, mostly in, in Southern California, I think, right, at the time? Yes. And they had a bunch of people come in. I'm the last one. And the college recruiter says, I'm going to give you a job offer right now. We want you to come work for our company. And I said, wow, that's that's great, and I'm honored. Uh, But I think I'm going to take this other offer that I have from, from Xerox. He says, I want you to meet someone. He takes me upstairs, and he sits me down. And the person I'm sitting across with is a guy by the name of Alan Questrom. He was a senior vice president at the time. I was so impressed with this guy. And, and the fact that he would take 30 minutes with me uh, one-on-one, wow. I was blown away by that. And, uh, and he was 35, I think, and I was 21. And I was looking up at him and thinking, gee, I wonder if when I'm 35, I could be something like this guy. Yeah. And he's telling me, we're going to start you on Monday. I said, well, sir, I, I have to go back to school. I haven't graduated yet. He goes, yeah, yeah, okay. So Monday you start, and we're going to put you in the electronics. I said, uh, sir, I, and I, I finally just stopped arguing with him. <laughs> this, guy, this guy was so passionate. And uh, so uh, I just ended up saying, you know what? I love this. I love this. these people. I love these guys. I love this company. And um, this culture that I'm seeing sounds like a place where I could go to work. Wow. And then they said, well, we took me back and he said, we're going to pay you the MBA rate, even though I had a bachelor's degree. And, uh, and, and the MBA rate was still a little bit less than what Xerox was paying. But I, I took it, shook hands, and that was, that was the deal. And you were hired as like a, a just a trainee. Trainee. And, and this is, and at this time, I think Bullock's was owned by, by Federated. Um, and, and if you went into a Bullock's in the, in the you know, late 70s, you would find everything, right? You'd find clothes and consumer electronics and watches and makeup. It was, right, like it was a one-stop shop for all that stuff. Yes, you'd have everything that uh, a, a Macy's would have today, but you would also have, you know, even yarns and fabric, and they really had a broad, a much broader assortment then. And stationery, you know, customized stationery with your, you know, initials printed on it. All those, all those things uh, were all part of the department stores back then. And it was big business, right? I mean, this was a these these companies were like 
extremely profitable. Very much so. Very big, very successful. They were the place to shop. There was uh, there was far fewer uh, specialty stores. There really wasn't the off-price business that you see today. And of course, there was no online business. Uh, so this is what people did. I mean, they, they, they made it a, a regular, particularly weekend event where the families would come and, and spend, you know, three hours. It was really a kind of a cultural event for uh, for for many families in, uh, in in back in those days. I can imagine you're kind of climbing up the ladder. You know, you start as a trainee and then eventually you get greater and greater promotions. You become a VP of this division and that division at Bullock's and then all the way to be becoming the, the head of Bullock's Wilshire, which was their kind of upscale um, chain of, of department stores. I can imagine that you probably saw a life for yourself as federated with all these brands, iMagna and Bloomingdale's. You could you know, climb up that, that corporate ladder and, and eventually, you know, retire in that company. I did. In fact, I was so excited to be named the the, the president of uh, of Bullock's Wilshire when I was 35. I replaced a 67 year old, and so when I when I was able to, to to snatch that that position, I honestly thought that you know I could be there for 30 years. I thought this is going to be it. I did it. You know, I'm done. Yeah, but in just a year, your your plans change. This is like. Uh, I guess 1988, because Federated uh, Department Stores, who owned Bullock's, got bought out by a Canadian company. uh, And then that company sold Bullock's, where you worked, and then some other West Coast stores to Macy's. And and, and after the buyout, what, you, you take off? Well, I didn't take off. I was actually let go. Oh. You know, the company had already been bought. Uh, I was getting ready to meet the uh, my new bosses, which were the CEO and the and the and the, and the COO, chief operating officer of of Macy's, were flying to meet me. Mm-hmm. I'm walking in at seven o'clock in the morning, and my phone's ringing, and it was a reporter who I know, Ed, Ed Nardoza. He's still there at Women's Wear Daily, and he was calling me to say, Terry. What do you think about the news? <laughs> and I said, what news? You've been replaced. Last night, they had a party at Macy's in New York for the person who's going to be taking over your job as head of Bullock's Wilshire. Wow. And my jaw just dropped to the ground. I mean, you had no idea. I had no idea. I thought I was doing really well and that they'd want me to be part of their company. and. I was blown away, absolutely blown away. And, you know, here, the first thing I'm thinking of is I got two little babies running around the house. I'm scared because I don't know what I'm going to do. Honestly, don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, so I was sort of on the bench looking, and then Neiman Marcus calls. And it was really that same person that I mentioned that I met when I was 21 years old, Alan Questrom, called me and said, don't take any jobs. He was at Neiman Marcus? He was about to go to Neiman Marcus. He said, because he got fired too. He lost his job. He was the vice chairman of Federated Department Stores. And so he said, you and I are going to go to Neiman Marcus. And so like three weeks later, uh, we were sort of a tag team that showed up at uh, at, at Neiman Marcus. Hmm. The business ultimately was in uh, in trouble and it was bought uh, through uh, by a private equity company coming in to save them as the white knight. And within just a, a matter of months, Alan Questrom was recruited back to Federated because Federated was bankrupt. So you become the CEO of Neiman Marcus. Yeah, I became the CEO of Neiman Marcus right then, chairman and CEO. You were 
37. And, and I read that when you were appointed um, the, the CEO of Neiman Marcus, um, there was a lot of head scratching in, in the retail world and the fashion world because you were not known. Do you remember that? Do you remember that criticism or that pushback or people saying, who is this guy? <laughs> I sure do. Uh, it was it was uh, there, it was definitely all of what you just described. Uh, I was not a welcome addition there, but because you can see um, that I'm sort of disrupting this what had been a family run business for decades. And what do I know? You know, what, 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 my, most of my career was at the Bullock's department stores. Now, I was for a short period of time running a very luxurious business similar to Neiman Marcus, but Neiman Marcus was significantly bigger than Bullock's Wilshire and iMagnet combined. So this was a big leap for me, for sure. And there was a lot of people wondering uh, how long I would I would last. Yeah. First thing I did was I just got out and I went to every store. I went and visited every single store, walked through the store, spent a day in each one, really understood who the people were, what our strengths were, what the product was, what was working, what wasn't working, really got a grounds up um, understanding of, uh, of what I thought was not working and really listening to the, the, the people in the stores, on you know, the, the, the feet on the ground, if you will, about what the consumer is saying. What was the challenge in, in 1990 at Neiman Marcus? Why, why was the company not performing well? We didn't have the emphasis on certain businesses that were growing. We basically treated certain businesses the same way for many, many years. And, of course, the business had shifted. You know, at that point, beauty became, was becoming a, a much more important business. Neiman Marcus didn't even have beauty at the front door. Um, there were things like that. I said, you know, let's, why don't we just try this? Why don't we just try putting beauty at the front door and expanding the footprint and uh, going after some of these new brands that we don't carry today? And, of course, this is what the consumer wanted. This is what our customer wanted. And so we were able to lift sales and things like of that nature. This is a family company, right? Stanley Marcus, I think his grandfather was one of the founders of this company in Dallas. And it's their company. It's their family's name on the on the front of the store. Um, how, like, was that challenging? I can imagine that, you know, if you come in with a, a bunch of different ideas, uh, you know, it's not going to go over too well all the time. It's so true. This is really early on when I was CEO. Uh, I'm walking into a restaurant and I see Stanley Marcus walking out of the restaurant. Now, Stanley had nothing to do with the store and he was a bit ostracized from the private equity firm who, um, you know, they, they didn't really talk respectfully uh, to, to each other and he just stayed away from the store. And, and so I see him and I, I said, Mr. Marcus, my name is, he said, I know who you are. Just like that, kind of barked at me. And I thought, oh, uh-oh, this isn't good. I said, Mr. Marcus, I would just love to sit down with you and just talk to you about the Neiman Marcus and, and uh, about your, your thoughts and, and beliefs. There's so much to learn. I, I would just love to have your ear, sir, if I can just do that. May I, may I, uh, may I visit you or can we have lunch? And he said... Uh, I won't come to your store, but you can come to my office. Call me in the morning. I said, yes, sir, I will. I mean, you were, but by the way, you were the CEO of the company. That's right. But he didn't really have much to do with it at that, at that point in time. So um, he just had his name on the door. That's the way I looked at it, which was pretty powerful. Right. And so uh, I went over to see him and visited with him. And uh, we, I think we ended up getting along more quickly than either of us thought we would. 
And I just was a sponge. This guy was brilliant. This guy, you know, invented luxury retailing as far as I was concerned. Yeah. And, and so I had so much to learn. I didn't really know all of the answers. I didn't fully understand this luxury consumer and what their desires were. And so um, I met with Stanley on a very regular basis, and I finally got him to come over to what was called the Zodiac Room, our restaurant at Neiman Marcus downtown Dallas. And I'll never forget that day when I'm sitting in the restaurant, Stanley Marcus, the two of us, and I'm looking around and eyes are popping out of the heads of all of the employees in the, um, in, in, in the building, particularly my executives. And all of a sudden, they thought I wasn't such an idiot after all <laughs> because I was surrounding myself with Stanley Marcus. And if Stanley Marcus is listening to me, maybe they might want to do that too. And so that was a huge breakthrough. He gave me the credibility that I did not have coming in without the experience in the luxury category. And I am forever grateful, always will be. I mean, it really sounds like, I mean, you got there and clearly you knew that people looked at you as like, who is this guy, you know? And you very consciously cultivated this sort of lion, right? And and knowing that if you could learn from him, then maybe it could, you know, give you some legitimacy. There's no question about it. And it's true. And And they were right. They were right to question me. You know, I didn't have uh, I didn't I didn't have the resume that would say this is a slam dunk. Put Terry Lundgren in this job, and he's gonna yeah. you know knock the cover off the ball. That wasn't that was not the case. And Stanley gave me the credibility to move the dial ahead, probably a year and a half or so faster than otherwise would have been possible because he gave me the credibility that I did not have walking in there without a resume to support, you know, my my vision. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, or a year and a half or so later, I guess, I brought him into my office. You know, we were transitioning my first my first year, but our business wasn't great. It was just bouncing along, but it wasn't great. And I said, we need this strategy in order for us to move the business forward. And it was talking about expanding beauty, expanding the men's department, offering some price points that were more balanced. Not everything was going to be luxury at that time. And I, you know, I explained all this and he just nodded. He was quiet and he just nodded. And um, after about 45 minutes or an hour of this, just the two of us, he said, okay. He, he starts to walk out of my office. And I said, so did you, you, you agree? <laughs> you agree with my strategy? And he said, my father told me many times we have to be sure to carry water on both shoulders. Mm. And I didn't know exactly what that meant, but he, he went on to explain that we have to satisfy our current customer while always attempting to cultivate the new. Sounds like uh, you, you really liked working for the company. You liked the family. You stay on as CEO of Neiman Marcus for I think about four years, and then I guess you you must have it must have been your old friend Alan Questrom because you leave in '94 to go back to Federated. Was Alan the guy that recruited you? Did he call you and say we need you back? Well, here's what happened. Macy's came to me and said we want to interview you for the the eventual CEO role of Macy's. And I thought, wow, what a turn of events this is. Yeah. So I said, well, 
I'm not, you know, look, I love what I do. I'm really uh, not that interested. I'm flattered. And they called me they ne- the next day and they said, you're our candidate. And I said, wow. <laughs> and they sent me this envelope. And Guy, I, 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 you know, I said, I'm not going to take this job. This is crazy. And then I opened this envelope and I said, oh, my. I've never seen numbers quite like this before. I mean, this this would change my family's life. You know, this would change everything. The house I lived in, the car I drove, the the future of my children's, you know. You know, I mean, it just really was, it was very big at that time. And I just was, holy macro, should I at least consider yeah. this? And so I um, called my friend, Alan Questrom. Your former mentor. My former mentor and, and was still then my mentor. And I said, Alan, look, I, you know, this is crazy. And I never even, even called you about this, but I just, I saw these numbers and they're ridiculous. And he said, um, you've never taken a job for money. It is a lot of money, but you've never taken a job for money. Why on earth would you start now? And I said, you're 100% right. That's all I need to hear. I called them back and I said, thank you. I've made up my mind. I'm not interested. Next day, Alan Questrom calls me up and says, um, okay, well, look, since you were considering leaving, I think you should consider coming back to Federated Department Stores. And I said, well, I really wasn't considering right. leaving. I just said this package was so ridiculous. I had to just look at it. But I really wasn't considering leaving. He said, well, what if I told you that if you came back to uh, Federated, that we could actually try to buy Macy's? <laughs> and I said, now that's a very interesting idea. And long story short, it took six months, but he convinced me to come back. And I went uh, in April of 1994, and we strategized in December of 1994, we bought Macy's. Wow. And it wasn't a welcome bid. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wisdom. Right. <laughs> so you go back to Federated and help Federated buy its longtime rival Macy's. And then the two companies merge. And, and during this time, you're not uh, CEO, but you're, I guess you're sort of being set up to, to grow into that kind of role eventually. Yes. I was made the chief merchant. 
head of uh, what was called Federated Merchandising. And, and my job was to you know, find commonality so we could do larger buys among our various buying groups and also ease the merge between Macy's and Federated, uh, find the efficiencies, uh, take out the waste, find the best talent, move them into the right jobs and roles and responsibilities, uh, and create, you know, a, a hopefully a, a successful merger between the two companies. So I'm curious, like now, you know, in the, in the late 90s, was there any inkling at that point that, that big retail stores like, you know, like Macy's might, might have some headwinds down the road? Or, or, or at the time, was it like, you know, this is great. This is, this is going to be a 100-year, 200-year business. Well, no, I didn't necessarily feel that way because when I, when I graduated from college, my, I told my college roommate that I was going to work for Bullock's Department Stores. He said, what are you doing going to a department store business? That's a dinosaur business. I never for, forgot that. And, and, you know, but his point was there's going to be other retailing, um, TV retailing, catalogs were out. And people say, oh, they're going to just shop on catalogs. They put an 800 number at the bottom of your catalog and you're just going to call up. That's going to kill the department stores, you know. And so there were all the... These, all of these uh, reasons why the business model of a department store was under attack for, for many years. And of course, the online business today is the, sort of the ultimate um, challenge. But, but I, felt, I felt the business was under attack from uh, many angles all through my career. And then, of course, when they became highly leveraged, it happened to a lot of department stores. Yeah. Federer was bankrupt. Macy's was bankrupt. Baumwitt Teller went out of business. B. Altman's went out of business. There, these were largely due to having too much debt during challenging operating periods that could not be paid. So you, I mean, you are, um, you know, Working with Alan at Federated Macy's in 2003, you become the CEO of Federated. So essentially overseeing all these brands including Macy's. At that time in 2003, um, was there a sense that this business needed to consolidate to kind of protect, you know, kind of create a moat around it? I mean, yes. was there a sense that that – all right, let's think about how we can we can protect our market share, our business for the next 20, 30, 40 sure. years. So when I became CEO and I talked about, you know, what, I, what I'd hoped we could do, my board was just genuinely surprised that I was so positive about this business that they had come to believe was under tremendous stress and was under, uh, you know, huge challenge mm. and, and was just uh, flattening out and uh, not performing. So, so when I got into that job, it was sort of a downer. Uh, period. And I'm coming in with such enthusiasm because I can't believe I've got this great opportunity and this great job and I'm excited about it and I have these ideas. And so so I, I came with this, this belief that we had to change uh, in order to, you know, move forward. And within one year, I said, I want to buy Marshall Fields. And they said, what? whoa, 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 young, young man, <laughs> slow down, young man. And I said, no, no. I said, we don't have any real estate in Chicago and Minneapolis and in Detroit. These are important markets, and we need to become a national yeah. you know, uh, department store powerhouse, and, and we need to, that coverage. And, and so they you know, were re- reluctantly ag- agreed because I demonstrated all the math why we should uh, be the, the be the ones who should take this company on, and uh, we were going to be bidding, of course, against the May Company. 
And the, and the May Company, they come in with a much higher bid. Substantially higher than what I was prepared to pay. And so the May Company buys the company, and I told my board of directors that night, I called them up and I said, we're out. And one of my directors said to me, uh, he said, Terry, sometimes these things have a tendency to come back around. You never know. And one year later, the CEO of, of May Company was let go. And uh, I viewed that as an opportunity to go to my board and say, I have a new idea. I'd like to buy the May Company. And um, it, took wow. a, it took a little convincing back and forth, but that's exactly what we did. And, and I felt like we bought the company uh, it, we, under very favorable terms. This was one of the biggest acquisitions of all time at that, at that yes. time. It was like $11 billion, build one of the largest retailers in the world. There are going to be more than 800 stores now. And this was huge. I mean, this dropped like a bomb, right? All of a sudden, Federated, which would soon become Macy's, was going to be the biggest one of the biggest retailers in, in, in the U.S. and the world. Yes. One of the beauties of this deal was we had studied it, you know, so, so long and hard. And I, I got a, you know, master's doctorate degree in finance through that whole process because we bought the company for $11 billion. But we relatively soon were able to sell off $8 billion worth of assets. So I sold... I sold Lord & Taylor for $1.2 billion within a year, and I actually sold it to what is now called Hudson Bay Company that owns Saks Fifth Avenue, but their first venture into retail was buying Lord & Taylor from us, and we, that was a very good sale on our part for $1.2 billion. But we said that then I sold David's Bridal for another $800 million, sold duplicate stores because May Company and, and Federated had stores in the same mall, and we needed to get rid of some. And so right. we, we just were able to pay down debt almost instantly. And what we were left with was uh, we paid less for the total May Company after selling off all those assets than what May Company paid for just Marshall Fields. And so we we felt really good mm. about the financial work that we had done in preparations for this uh, and, and thought that it was not only was a big buy and a big decision, but uh, we, we thought our, our, our financing plan worked, uh, worked beautifully. I mean, I mean, could you argue that at this time you were sort of doubling down on, on the future of department store retailing, right? Yes, I was. Um, but I felt like we needed to have, you know, the, a, a national fashion department store, and that did not exist in the United... It didn't exist really any, in any country, but certainly didn't exist in America. And so I thought, you know, if we could have uh, one brand, ultimately, uh, that could f capture the real estate in all the key markets, we will quickly become not only the largest customer for all of these brands, but we'll probably have about a third of their business for the most part. And so we did that when we combined. And then, you know, eventually we made some other big bets, including collapsing divisions so that we would ultimately be able to have one buyer for, you know, each of the categories that we, we, we sold. Terry, you know, I mean, you, you were well aware of this as a student of business and somebody who, who reads the press that you were criticized for that purchase in, in, in 2005, that, that you know, there were some analysts who said this is not the right uh, move for, for Federated Macy's. But I wonder if, if you hadn't done that acquisition back, back at the time with, with, uh, of May Company, 
do you think Macy's would have been in a worse position today? Oh, I definitely do. Because Macy's would not have been a national player. They would not have been the largest customer for all of their brands. And, and you know, I listen, I, I, when you're in these roles, you, you're, there's always going to be criticism. And then I would ask, how do you like the status quo? How do you like doing nothing and just continuing on the path that you've already been on? And I think not enough uh, analysts ask that question. If they would have just stayed on the path they were on, let these other competitors come in, then what would have happened to them? And and my answer to that, I didn't like the answer to that. I didn't like where that future was going to be. I could see it if I just did nothing and continued on. So taking that risk, in fact, to me, was uh, safer than not taking a risk by not changing. That, that to me, was an even bigger risk. So I, t- I felt passionately uh, about not sitting on the sidelines and letting this happen to us, but rather taking a bold move and creating what I thought could be, and, and frankly was, you know, the largest uh, fashion uh, retailer in, in, the, in the world, basically. I think it was uh, roughly two years after, uh, after the, the acquisition, um, you are facing the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression, right? Um, 2007, 2009, financial crisis and recession. Everyone gets absolutely hammered. Um, and retail, particularly brick-and-mortar retail at this, this moment, is incredibly vulnerable. Do you, do you remember, um, I don't know, feeling worried at, at that time? Oh, yeah, uh, very much so. Uh, you know, and it, this is another... Um, you know, big financial setback that the retailers felt immediately. And and I remind people that retailers knew that we were headed for a recession um, before the Lehman Brothers collapse hmm. and the Merrill Lynch acquisition. We we saw business challenge the business being challenged and consumer pullback well before that September period. Uh, so that when when that actually occurred, when the event that Monday morning occurred, uh, you know, it was a precipitous drop in in consumption, but it was already on the decline. And so uh, we were now saying, okay, this is going to be around for a while. And uh, we need to have a different cost structure than the one that we've been operating with because uh, the business isn't going to jump back to where where we've been. So um, I need to take costs out. That's the first thing. I said, so, but I don't want to just take costs out. I want to figure out how to take costs out and create a better mousetrap and create a more attractive company for our consumers. How do we do that? So I collapsed all of the divisions after a quick test, saved a half, a $600 million, but told Wall Street I only saved $500 million because I took $100 million and reinvested it into this new organization structure called My Macy's, which had the intent of identifying merchandise that was locally relevant to consumers. And I remember telling a story that when I was at Bullock's department stores and I was a buyer Uh, at one point in time of dinnerware and getting a call from my department manager of the the China and Crystal and Silver area in South Coast Plaza, one of our stores. And she says to me, Terry, I've got 
12 brides registered for the Lennox Eternal pattern, and I'm out of stock. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> so uh, I remember checking my inventory and my paper log and driving to the Lakewood store after work that night, filling up my car with a whole <laughs> bunch of China dinnerware sets and driving it to the South Coast Plaza store. And the problem was solved for the weekend. And, and I said, so how do we use technology to solve the problem the way we solved it back then? Hmm. How do we create the local response that I just described? Because we want customers in South Coast Plaza to say, this is my Macy's, and it's different than Macy's in New York City. It's different than Macy's in San Francisco. It's different in Macy's Dallas, Texas. And and, and that's where we came up with this concept of of uh, dispersing our, our buyers, collapsing the big divisions, and then putting a, small, a much smaller group in the market, in the field, who could tell us what we needed in each of these major hubs. And it was just like the yeah. old days. It was just like the old days when I was a buyer. And that was a huge, that became a huge hit for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Sherry. I mean, when you are, right, you're, you, you are essentially in this position where you have to be optimistic and you have to represent, um, you know, the, the best possible face of a company because you are the CEO of the company. But, but probably, I mean, it didn't take a whole lot of, of, of research and reading to, to see that down the road, all of these businesses were going to face some, some huge challenges. I mean, obviously, not just Walmart and Target, but Amazon and, and other online retailers were really starting to make an impact by the late 2010s and you know here you are atop this this giant legacy company Macy's was there a moment in your mind where you thought you know I don't know if creativity and um, and new initiatives is ever going to really be able to compete with you know a website that that isn't even holding inventory you know it doesn't have a brick and mortar store I mean did, did you when did you start to kind of think about about that possibility? Well, I came back to Federated, as we said, in 1994. And in 1995, we launched our first website. So we, we started thinking about it back then. And we had a big division in, in uh, San Francisco, which, of course, when, when Silicon Valley was uh, uh, just beginning to, uh, to grow and emerge as this force that we all know it to be today. And so we said we have to be in this in this business. Yeah. And it was very slow and it was uh, very unsophisticated, but we were in the game. And then we kept evolving it. And, and so by the time 2010 had come around, we had put lots of resources into our, our online business. And today, Macy's is the fourth largest online retailer in America, only behind Amazon, Walmart, and Apple. So, Terry, I mean, this is a little fast forwarding a little bit, but in 2017, you retired from your role as CEO of Macy's. And I know that that over your time there, like sales increased by a substantial percentage. And and coming out of the recession, it was the increase of something like 80%, which, of course, is hugely impressive. But today, I mean, you look at a company like Macy's, right? And, and they're just isn't a whole lot of foot traffic anymore, right? I mean, I, I remember as a kid going into into you know Macy's or Bullocks or one of these department stores right there are lots of people there are lots of employees there's action right and now you walk into a department store and and, and they're quiet like it, it feels hard to believe that they can continue to be successful I mean do you think that in 
you know, 20 or 30 years, department stores will still be around? Well, let me start with this. You know, today, 80% of all apparel and shoes and accessories are sold in a physical store today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so the answer is, is that consumers still are in those physical stores and shopping. It's just less. And by the way, that that 80% uh, today is going to go to 70%. And it's going to keep going a bit. I don't know if it's going to go to zero in 30 years. I, I, I... there will be some form, I, I hope, of human contact in the in the selling process. Yeah. Today, my favorite transaction is the what we call click and collect or buy online and pick up in store. And the consumer does all of her research, uh, purchases the the item that she finally decides upon, goes into the store, tries on the shoe or the apparel that she's uh, that she's bought. And if it if she bought a size six and needs a size eight, she makes that decision and changes it right there on the spot. This is uh, where I think you're you're blending both the online and the physical store together, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. When you think about your your journey as a as a leader, do you think that you were born with those capabilities and capacities, or do you think you really learned how to become a leader over the course of your career? I've been asked this question um, many times, and I and I and I guess I used to say, "Oh, we can all learn," and I'm still learning, frankly, now. Uh, but but there has been so many examples of when I was young being thrown into a position of Terry. Why don't you become the captain of the basketball team? Why don't you become the pledge class president? Why don't you become you know? the a CEO when you're 35. You know, so I I didn't ask for all of these roles. It just it just sort of found me. And so I do believe there's something, you know, that was in me that uh that that helped me, you know, become a a leader. And I honestly believe that when my father cut me off uh in 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 college in those last 2 years when i had to fend for myself and i had to work on my own and get a job and perform well in school that was a, such a critical development period for me and the fact that that restaurant kept promoting me um each time made me realize hey you know what wake up you know you 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 can do a lot you can do a lot more than than you've applied in the past and once you apply yourself and believe in yourself and go get it and just see what's out there for you. And I think that's what gave me the confidence to go and hustle for those 13 job offers that I that I received after college and at that restaurant. So I think it's in a lot of us, but sometimes it, it lays dormant and until it gets woken up by examples that I've just provided. That's Terry Lundgren, former CEO of Neiman Marcus and Macy's. In 2015, Barron's named him one of the top 30 CEOs in the world. Terry retired as chairman of Macy's in 2018. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. 